the talk tonight is a, a traditional talk at this retreat for Saturday night, and it's about um, the power of renunciation. As the retreat begins, we all feel deeply touched by the forces of purity that bring us all together. And I think that there are such mysterious karmic forces at play that bring this particular group of people together at this particular time. Uh, And it's powerful to just reflect on that. You know, who made it here? Who didn't? You know, what what is this great fortune that we get to be here? and others don't. It's amazing, it's amazing to be able to have the blessing to be here. And at the end of this talk, uh, Dhamma Ruan, who is sitting to my right, is going to uh, chant a blessing uh, for us as a way to honor, you know, this, this great, you know, force of purity and blessing that brings us together. So it's very rare to get the karma, you know, to get this good fortune to be able to practice and to be able to practice for such a long time. Sometimes I just think about the people who cannot afford to be here. You know, I mean, and sometimes there are scholarships available, but that isn't enough. Sometimes people just can't. Um, literally afford to take that time o- much time off, you know. So for whatever conditions that arise for us to have um, this blessing, it's wonderful to be able to reflect on that and know that we will bring back to the world as much wisdom and compassion as we can. There were two very significant meetings that the Buddha-to-be had um, that were incredibly transformational for him on his spiritual journey. And one of these meetings was seeing a monk, seeing a renunciate, and the other was being shown kindness, being given some rice gruel, Uh, when he was practicing the ascetic uh, practices and shifted his practice. Uh, So to make a long story short about his first meeting, uh, when he was a prince in uh, the palace with his father, and he lived a very easeful, very comfortable uh, life as a prince. In fact, his father... um, had him stay in three palaces over the course of a year, so he didn't experience any uncomfortable weather, (laughs) even. Uh, And his father didn't want him to experience any unpleasantness. But as he got older, and you know what we're like in our teens, he started to want to explore beyond his familiar home territory. And eventually he pushed hard enough for uh, his father to allow him to go out. 
but his father actually uh, cleaned up the whole village of anything that this prince could even see that would be uh, bring up discomfort. He, he cleaned out anything, someone old, someone sick. Uh, you know, it's, it's just incredible. Uh, he just didn't want his son to see anything like that. But when the prince went out, uh, a deva, a celestial being, uh, each time, it said he went out three times, and each time the celestial being conjured up uh, someone sick, someone old. Actually, it was somebody old, somebody sick, and somebody dead. And the first time he saw somebody sick, I mean somebody old, he, th- he asked the driver uh, of the chariot, he asked, is this going to happen to me? And then, is this going to happen to everyone? And it was so powerful for him. And he had to return to the palace. And it had just such a deep, again, a deep transformation for him, you know, to acknowledge that, yes, um, he was going to age, and everyone that takes birth will age. And then again, you can imagine, you know, somebody's sick. Is this, can this happen to me? Will this happen to all beings? Yes. And then somebody dead. Will this happen to me? Will this happen to everyone? Um, And then the fourth time he went out, he saw a renunciate. And the the description of this uh, being that the, the prince saw was someone more peaceful than peace itself. Someone more peaceful than peace itself, a renunciate. This is the meaning of renunciation. You know, the purpose of it, to become peaceful. And you can imagine that that meeting with the renunciate was what inspired the Buddha to be in in his lifetime. Uh, to to leave home, to leave the comfort, and to go on this great spiritual journey of discovering, you know, the peace within, discovering wisdom, compassion within. And then the Buddha-to-be did long years of searching, long years of ascetic practices, a lot of intense self-mortification, extreme isolation. Uh, He became so emaciated from wandering in the forest, so emaciated from fasting that he literally almost died. And I'm, you know, making this story much shorter, but there was a certain point, you know, where you could, you know, see all the bones in his body. And there was a young woman who was... um, going out to make an offering of rice gruel to the gods and goddesses that her family worshipped. And her mother sent her out with this bowl of rice gruel to make an offering. And she was so touched by the Buddha-to-be suffering. You know, she was so empathetic that instead of doing what her mother wanted, which was, <laughs> you know, very disobedient, you know, she offered him the rice gruel. And it was from 
receiving this young woman's kindness that his practice totally changed. So it was this series of steps. First, the seeing, seeing what can happen to all beings, you know, and getting this spiritual urgency from seeing somebody aging, somebody sick, somebody dead. That created the conditions for spiritual urgency. You know, this is how we get ourselves to a retreat. There's some motivation, some intention. And then we have to have a sense that there's some freedom from this. Yeah, there's some end to the suffering. And that's the renunciate, just getting that whiff or taste of something so other, some d- so different. Someone swimming upstream. Someone free from suffering. And then he tried so hard through these ascetic practices, but he couldn't make a balanced effort and practice. So receiving this kindness, I think, is so magnificent, this story. You know, just the magnificence of being willing to be dependent and receiving the kindness, and that being the inspiration to get enough energy to practice with balance. He, ha- he then had enough energy to not give up and not try too hard. You know, so we, we need to remember how this is happening for us here. And how do, we, how do we practice renunciation here? The only way we can do it is by the generosity of the staff. You know, we're receiving the rice gruel every morning, every lunch. You know, it's like it's really important to make this connection because it's the generosity of others that it's the, that it's the foundation of what we're doing here. And then it's the generosity of kindness for ourselves that we're willing to let go of our preferences to be here. You know, we're willing to become like monks and nuns for a time to go on this great spiritual journey. The energy that we usually put into our outer life, we conserve. So it's great to see that we're really contributing to sustainability on so many levels when we're at a retreat. So that that practice of conserving energy and putting that energy that we're normally putting out in our daily life for survival, for friendship, it's not to knock any of that, that's what we do. But we take that energy and put it into our inner life to, to develop the intention is to develop more wisdom and compassion. So it's very important to understand, you know, this this relationship of generosity and kindness to the development of wisdom and compassion. Renunciation is kindness toward ourselves and others. In the Buddha's time, renunciation often meant difficult physical conditions. You know, we were, (laughs) if we were there at that time and after we were begging for food, you know, uh, we were sleeping outside, 
you know, it, the conditions were often more difficult. Um, we don't have a concierge here at IMS. It's not a luxury hotel. But in comparison to even the way most humans live on the planet, this is very cushy. You know, this is, we're giving up a lot and the conditions are wonderful. Um, and sometimes that's not easy to remember when we experience the unease, anxiety, and kind of letting go of our support systems and routines. Uh, but try to remember that the conditions here um, are very good. And in some ways, it makes it harder to renounce certain things when there's a possibility of a phone or the possibility of mail or, you know, it's like um, one really has to practice restraint and understand why we're doing it. The bottom line, I think, for those of us who have practiced through a lot of different conditions is that we deeply understand that no matter what place we have to practice, it can't be perfect. You know, there will always be something that isn't perfect, and that's life. That's the way it is. Um, and the idea of renunciation is bringing us face to face with the roots of suffering within us. That's the purpose of conserving the energy so that we can see more clearly. So in this process of giving up preferences, we're meant to see the preferences more clearly. Um, so I wanted to mention um, some of the ways in which being on retreat will um, show us some of our preferences um, and also maybe give a few stories about how that has worked for me. I had a good friend that um, when I was on staff here we did a retreat together, and we shared the same room on the retreat. And I um, snored quite loudly at that time in my life, and we had never shared a room before. So, you know, the days were going on, and it was getting very difficult for her because she wasn't getting much sleep, and I was getting a lot of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I was happily sleeping, snoring. Um, and this friend was getting more frustrated and impatient, but she hung in there with it. And one night, um, I started talking in my sleep. I also talk in my <laughs> sleep. Um, and so the, this went on a few more nights. I think it was like the sixth, seventh, eighth night I was talking in my sleep. And she had an incredible deep insight, you know, just to know that sometimes conditions can be difficult. Um, but I was having a conversation <laughs> with her one night. She started to talk back, and she started to realize, well, who is speaking here to me? And uh, this question, like, well, who's speaking 
to me here? And who is Michelle? You know, and then who am I? She had this very deep understanding of anatta, of emptiness. And it was, it was very liberating. And so I'm not suggesting that we always want to put ourselves in these circumstances, but I have found over and over again that when I am in a situation that's challenging, it's usually the best medicine. You know, it is the thing that brings more liberation. Um, I would I would guess that if you ask those of us who've been teaching a long time what a lot of our retreat experience was, it wasn't in singles. In fact, my, a lot of my early practice was dorm style. You know, so so these conditions here again, you know, it's like it's great if you get a single, but it could be that it slows down your liberation practice. Um, it's it's much quicker when you have to share. You know, one has to face what comes up. One has to face one's preferences. In terms of what interview teacher we get, um, the teachers that I've had from Burma um, have a fan that they hold in front of them a lot. And then when Mahasi Saido, a great teacher, scholar and practitioner from Burma came here, um, he would always talk behind a fan. You know, it's like some of the Burmese teachers now don't necessarily talk behind the fan. They'll have the fan down. But the old way was to not even show their face when they spoke, to get a sense that it's the practice that's liberating. It's the, teach, it's the teachings that's liberating. And so if we don't always get the teacher we want in an interview, again, in my years of practice, I often found that um, I ended up with who I needed at the time, and that um, my preference would have been um, less liberating. This... Um, practice in this tradition is called the path of purification. And there's three trainings, the training of renunciation, and the training of concentration, and the training of wisdom. Um, and so this practice of renunciation, it includes the precepts, and it includes this intention not to harm. And, and try to remember that, you know, sometimes in the West, this, this practice of renunciation isn't always emphasized as much as the wisdom or the concentration, but it is considered a third of the practice, and it is considered um, something that you don't do just a little bit, get it out of the way, and then it's the end. It's like there's a beginning, middle, end with renunciation. There's a beginning, middle, end with concentration and wisdom. It's like they're... They're considered equally important and there all along the way. Uh, and I know when I enter a retreat field like this, it's, it's just, it's so wonderful to drop into this place where it's so easy not to harm. And where a hundred people are dedicated 
to this intention not to harm. I mean, talk about rare and precious. You know, talk about protected. Um, talk about rare. You know, it's just, just such a gift. And, and sometimes when we're in the thick of difficult practice, we forget that what we're doing in and of itself as not harming is a practice. It's huge. And again, it's, it's out of um, letting go of a lot of our support systems, um, talking, you know, outer life, that what we're doing is we're intensifying seeing our needs and wants more clearly. And this isn't saying that having needs and wants isn't okay. It's meant to see them clearly. We're meant to see them clearly and not have to act on them all. So we're meant to learn that we don't have to be oppressed by our preferences. We develop what's called discriminating wisdom. So I'd like to just read a list of um, possibilities of areas that might be a little troublesome for some of us at the beginning of a retreat, like favorite rooms or uh, doubles versus singles, or who we get as teachers, or favorite foods, or mail, catalogs, <laughs> shopping, um, <laughs> you know, getting to listen to tapes, or renouncing politics, windows. Um, you know, I mean, I've been teaching this retreat, I think, since 1981, so that's like, you know, a lot of years, right? many years, 23 years, um, but if you knew how many hours we have put into meeting about the windows in this hall, it's just, you'd, you, would, you would cry if you heard how many hours we have put into trying to regulate how a hundred people can like live with windows here so that it, there isn't a world war. You know, and it might sound funny to you now, but a month into this retreat, you start to find that who has control of the window to be really important, you know, and that, you know, the, so we come up with these policies. You know, the policies have, you know, developed to this incredible refinement and sophistication, you know, because, you know, we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot. There's, there's a great one downstairs, the light bulb. I don't, know, I don't know if it's still there, but on the bowling alley, there used to be this kind of light bulb, a raw light bulb there, and there used to be really literally almost fistfights about if the light was on or off. Um, and you know, it, again, it might sound funny to us at the beginning of the retreat, but it, it does become an issue, our territory, our space. It's, if you walked into this hall a month from now and somebody took your zafu, or somebody was sitting in your place, you know, this becomes a big deal. You know, so having a sense of how to live in a community, you know, and what, what's more important, self-centeredness or, you know, the harmony of the uh, group is, is 
really important to consider. So for example, um, shower hours. You know, do we really need that shower while somebody might be sitting next door to that shower? Again, two or three weeks from now, we might really feel like we need that shower at a time when it isn't a shower hour, whereas now it might seem like it's not such a big deal. But literally, there is that sense I can say, please respect shower hours. There are people sitting in their rooms, and it's really nice to have that um, respect given to protecting their practice. And if you're sitting in your room and somebody takes a shower at a time that isn't called for, see if you can work with it. You know, see if you can work with the sound, the aversion that comes up. Do you see it's like, this is what we do in this community, is we learn to work with something when somebody doesn't follow the policy, as well as really try to respect it. In this way, we see that we can't always control our fellow human beings, you know, or ourselves. <laughs> and there's that range of um, the identification with entitlement and to the place of disappearing, where we don't think it's okay to have a need or want. It's like there's this range of identification, and we'll get to see it all. We have, we have the capacity to do it all. One of the most important places that I would like you to kind of contemplate and try to remember is in the level of notes. Uh, Notes to each other, notes to teachers, notes to staff. And I I will just kind of try to paint a picture with this in that um, in terms of notes to each other, even nice notes, grateful notes, neutral notes and aversive notes, none of them are okay. You know, because we're, we're really committing to silence, and notes are breaking the silence. Um, and the, of course, the most difficult are the notes that are angry, that are couched with so much metta. You know, so again, somebody might think they're writing a really reasonable note, but it's oozing with aversion, and then it's usually signed metta. You know, and if you get a note like that, and you're, you know, you're again a few weeks into this course, you walk into the hall, you get a note like that. It's devastating. And the person who writes it might think that, you know, maybe they wrote it because you coughed a little or sneezed a little. It isn't okay. You know, this is just the bottom line: is that it's not okay. If you're having trouble, talk to a teacher. If your teacher isn't around, find one. Or if you're really hitting the edge, you know, go into the office, you know. But just writing each other notes isn't okay. And then there's the level of notes to staff or teachers. You know, the question is, do I really need to write this? And of course, there are some notes that are necessary to write. And so that's, again, you know, the important thing to just tune into is, is this necessary? You know, and unless it's an emergency, what we have all found over the course of time is that usually you wait 24 hours, 
before you write a note, and usually what you were really needing so urgently is usually over in 24 hours. And this doesn't mean things, mean things like from staff that we really need, or again, emergencies. And then the other side of this is that, you know, we find that um, sometimes we might find that someone doesn't get back to us as soon as we need to. And if it's not an emergency, you know, and you're still waiting and it seems like something's off, talk to a teacher. You know, just, you know, it's, again, if it's something you really need, you don't have to feel like it's not okay to receive that. You know, to give you an interesting story about this, one time I, this was way back, by the way, you know, some many years ago at a three-month retreat, but there was somebody, a student, that kept coming into interviews with me, and it started by this person saying, um, you know, there's something that really smells in my room. And I was like, I was trying to kind of problem solve. I was like, well, you know, open the window, see if there's something smelling. And, and he came in a little while later and is like, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's my roommate smells, you know, but you know, something is really smelling in my room. And I didn't quite know what to do. It's like, what do you do? Send maintenance in the room to kind of smell it? You know, like it was just, it was, it was sort of so vague. Um, and he came into my, my interview <laughs> again, and he was crying. <laughs> He's like, you know, it's really bad. You know, the window open doesn't work. You know, I even opened the door. It's just really smelling. And then his roommate had to leave for some reason, and um, he found that the roommate had had all these sausages, and <laughs> and they were going bad, you know, and it really smelled, you know, and it, I mean, now what do you, who would have ever thought of that, right? And <laughs> you know, sometimes you get these bizarre things and, you know, you just kind of finally find out <laughs> why you're suffering. Um <laughs> but those kind of things are rare. You know, luckily, you know, one time we had a squirrel nesting in somebody's wall, you know, and eventually maintenance had to come and take the squirrels out. You know, but generally speaking, you know, things work out pretty well. And, you know, usually at the beginning, if you have a double and it feels like you might have a window situation or something, work it out now. You know, if you think you might feel like you have to write a birthday card two weeks from now, think about any kind of things like that might, that might come up now. Write them, send them now, or get them ready, you know, so that you have the sense, like uh, Miyoshin was saying last night, see if you can take care of whatever you need to take care of ahead of time, because there's nothing like just entering in a retreat and letting it all go. That's the idea behind it. That's the idea behind everybody and the staff and teachers creating the space so that you can let go. The great Zen master Dogen um, wrote this instruction for the cook.
An oven does not discriminate between fancy firewood and thorns. It accepts everything without preference and transforms it into thermal energy to cook nice or to heat, oh, to (laughs) cook rice, Uh to cook rice or to heat bath water. Pleasure and sadness, love and hatred, all different kinds of firewood come into the, uh, the oven of our lives. How can we go about accepting and burning them all, transforming them into the energy of our lives? If we complain and become sulky, our lives become smoky and we cannot burn anything. And when we become smoky, we disturb others. Isn't that great? You know, so if you think of the retreat as the oven, you know, and we're going to, you know, start warming up. um, And the fire is really, what turns the fire up is getting to see our preferences. And that comes through renunciation. And this is where we start to discriminate between what we really need for happiness and what's extra. You know, what is it that really brings about happiness? And the ultimate sustainability for ourselves and others in the planet is really getting to see, you know, that there's this deeper peace and deeper happiness that isn't based on experience. The Buddha taught that when craving is present, there's no contentment. And so when we um, start to see our identification with preferences, we'll start to see when we suffer, when we're becoming a slave to our craving, a slave to our preferences. Uh, So this process, this process of purification of mind, purification of heart, you know, there's nothing more noble and wonderful to do. There's nothing that can bring about sustainability inside and outside of us, you know, than this deep spiritual practice. And renunciation is the foundation for that. And remember that when we're mindful, you know, when we're taking great care, it's contagious. And you know when you're, you're carefully kind of opening doors in your room and not slamming them and not, you know, thundering down the hallways. And uh, that, that peacefulness is contagious, just like the Buddha-to-be uh, really got so affected by the renunciate. When we're, when we're not mindful, that can be contagious. When we're mindful, that can be contagious. And we just start to see how deeply our lives intertwine and how, so, how deeply we affect each other. So try to remember that we're all here to protect each other's practice, to protect each other's solitude. You know, and that even if we're not wanting um, to be so quiet, um, to remember that our that our willingness to act that way, even when we're not feeling that way, helps contain 
the energy of the whole group. And I know at a beginning of retreat can be very poignant. You know, it's like um, we're excited about going deeply inside and there's still that feeling that our life is so close, our, our friends, our family. And so I wanted to read a quotation from Tennessee Williams about loneliness. He said, When so many of us seem so lonely, it would be quite selfish to experience our loneliness all by ourselves. (laughs) So here we are. You know, what we're learning to do is transform that sense of loneliness into being alone together and to go deep inside together uh, to a place where we don't experience any separation, where we really touch into the truth of interconnectedness. But we find that over and over by going through the loneliness. So here we are entering this um, beautiful way of life. And I think of renunciation as is really that basis of beauty. So to um, really celebrate um, the blessing of us being together, of entering the ceremony of purification, Adama Ruan is going to chant for us, and I would highly recommend that you really get in the space of receiving his chanting. It's really powerful and beautiful. Um, Damaruan is in the teacher training program that uh, some of the IMS teachers are doing and um, comes from Sri Lanka. And he's been in the States for quite a while now. How long? Four months. months, And he has a wife and two children (laughs) waiting uh, waiting for him. So um, he will go back soon. And... um, He's willing to chant for us, which is a great gift. So here we go. Uh, This chant is uh, called the Mahamangala Sutta, which is... uh, called The Great Discourse on Blessings. Uh, this comes in the Sutta Nipata and also in Kuddaka Nipata, Kuddaka Pata. Uh, so, I will just, uh, before chanting, I'll explain what it is in English. Uh, one time, when Buddha was living in uh, uh, Shravasti in Jeta's grove, uh, a deity uh, came towards him, a, lay, a female deity, and asked this question uh, about blessings. Because like today, there are so many blessings today. Even at those days, there were so many types of blessings. And there was a lot of questions on uh, 
figuring out what is the blessing supreme. So this was the question asked from the Buddha. And then Buddha answered this question in this uh, sutra, which is a very beautiful sutra. And this whole sutra has a connection to the Eightfold Noble Path. And also uh, enlightenment and also renunciation. Uh, so the female deity asks, Many deities and humans have pondered on blessings, desiring their well-being. Tell me the blessings supreme. Buddha's reply is, To associate not with the foolish, to be with the wise, to honor the worthy ones, this is a blessing supreme. To reside in a suitable location, to have good past deeds done, to set oneself in the right direction, this is a blessing supreme. To be well-spoken, highly trained, well-educated, skilled in work, and highly disciplined, this is a blessing supreme. To be well-caring of mother, father, to look after spouse and children, to engage in harmless occupation, this is a blessing supreme. Outstanding behavior, blameless action, open hands to all relatives and friends, and selfless giving, this is a blessing supreme. To cease and abstain from evil, to avoid intoxicants, to be diligent in virtuous practices, this is a blessing supreme. To be reverent and humble, content and grateful, to hear the Dhamma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme. To be patient and obedient, to visit with spiritual people, to discuss the Dhamma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme. To live austerely and purely, to see the noble truths and to realize Nibbana, this is the blessing supreme. A mind unshaken when touched by the worldly states, sorrowless, stainless and secure, this is the blessing supreme. And finally he says, those who have fulfilled all these are everywhere invincible. They find well-being everywhere. Theirs is the blessing supreme.
नमो तस् भगवत अर्हत सम्मास नमो तस् भगवत अर्हत सम्मास नमो तस् भगवत अर्हत सम्मास ஏவங்மேசுதங்கசமயங்கவாசாவத்தியங்விஹரத்திஜேத்தவனேஅநாத்பிண்டிகஸ்ஆராமே ஜேத்தவனங்கோபாசித்வாபகவாத்தேனுபசங்கமீபசங்கமித்வாபவந்தங்கிவாதித்வேகமந்தங்கோசாதேவா ஆசேவனாச்சபாலானங் பண்டிதானஞ்சேவனா பூஜாச்சூஜனீயானங் ஏதங் மங்களமுத்தமங் பதிரூபதேசவாசோச்சுபேச்சுக்கத்துப்புண்யத்தம்மாபனிதிச்ச ஏதங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமுத்தமங்கலமு
चाहितं मंगल मुत्तमं तपोच ब्रह्मचर्यंच हरिय सच्चान दसनं निबान सच्चिकिरियाच एतं मंगल मुत्तमं उत्तस लोक दम्हे ही चित्तं यस्न कंपति असोखं विरजं केमं एथं मंगल मुत्तमं एथा दिशानिकत्वान सबत मपराजिथा सबत सुतिंगरंचं तं ते संमंगल मुत्तमंति Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.